We're going to be looking at something that we've been talking about all this quarter. We're wanting to go back with the New Testament, go back to exactly what it says about the church and see if we can restore that New Testament church. That's what we want to do. We're not trying to fill in with anything that we've decided for ourselves. It's not necessarily what we would somehow like or appreciate. It's what the Word of God says. And I hope we can look at the Word of God with that appreciation and that love and that commitment that we've been talking about tonight. And if we can love God in that way and love one another in that way, it's going to be a, a tremendous thing. I want you to understand something. We need the Word of God. We need to measure ourselves by it. We need to measure the church that we know by it. And I want you to think about some things with us uh, to recognize, first of all, that we're going to be assembling some data and, and looking at some things because the New Testament gives us some information we need. Why do we meet on the first day of the week? Why do we not meet on the Sabbath day as the Jews did? What's the purpose? What's the reasoning behind that? What's the focus that we have in doing that particular idea? Well, first of all, I want you to think about the simple fact that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. We could look at a lot of verses and really understand that. The resurrection narratives in the Gospels, all four of them, always began with a time designation. I don't know whether you've noticed that or not. After the resurrection, when the women went to the tomb, and Mark chapter 16 and verses 1 and 2 says, And when the Sabbath was passed, what day of the week is the Sabbath on? The seventh day of the week. We know that very easily. We know God told the children of Israel that they were to keep that Sabbath day because he created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. And from their exodus from Egypt, when they had brought a, come out of Egypt and been delivered by God and at Sinai received the, the law that they were to be under, the Sabbath day was set aside as a very special day for them for them to worship. And then we see the women came when the Sabbath was passed very early on the first day of the week. We all know the first day of the week. That's Sunday. On the first day of the week, they went to the tomb when the sun had risen. That's Mark 16, verses 1 and 2. Luke chapter 24, verse 11 says, But on the first day of the week, at the early dawn... They went to the tomb. Uh, they, that very day, verse 13 says, that was when the Lord appeared to the disciples and, uh, that they were, were walking on the road to Emmaus. You remember the story. They were so filled with sorrow, grief, at the crucifixion of Jesus, it had been three or four days, the fourth day now, or third day now, and they, 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 their grief is not yet really sinked in. 
until somebody started walking with them. We're not told how it appeared and how, how he caught up with them or just how it appeared, but we know Jesus started walking with them, but he held his appearance so they didn't recognize him. He talked to them a lot. Finally went in the house to eat with them, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. In John chapter 20 and verse 1, we're told on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb while it was early, while it was still dark. Now, I quote this before Matthew, because Matthew 28, 1, some have found some things that might not be uh, translated correctly. Different translations that you use will look at it a little bit differently. I think the best translation is very common to several others. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, that's when they went to the tomb and found it empty. That's when Jesus had risen. Therefore, on the first day of the week, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. And then secondly, I want you to realize an interesting thing. We've read it. We all know what I'm talking about. Jesus met with his disciples after the resurrection on that first day of the week. You remember he sent the ladies back in? You go back in and tell them that I've risen. The angel told them, you go back in and pass this message. Uh, well, what did the disciples think? You know, they, they, we can say they were puzzled. They were not totally believers in the resurrection at this particular point, but John makes a very special point at this time, telling about the discovery of the empty tomb. He says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, Jesus came and stood among them. On the evening of that day, what day? The day of the resurrection. The day when the women had gone to the tomb. The day when Peter and John had raced to the tomb. Found it empty. On the evening of that day, the disciples were meeting together in a closed room. They were afraid. And I can understand that, and I think you can too. But Jesus suddenly came and stood among them, appeared there. Thomas wasn't with them, according to verse 19. He was missing at that particular point. But if we read on down to verse 26, we find eight days later. Now, if they were meeting on the first day of the week, eight days later would be the first day of the next week, wouldn't it? I think that's right. Eight days later, in other words, the next Sunday, his disciples were in the house again behind closed doors, and Thomas was with them, and that's when Jesus appeared again. Now, I want you to think about something else at this point. The post-resurrection meals that Jesus ate with his disciples occurred on the first day of the week. Do you ever think about that? We could, uh, we could think of all the different times that that is spoken, but think of it, that, and that's just the case. Pentecost came on the first day of the week. 
if you take from the Passover uh, uh, 50 days, that's what Pentecost means, 50th day. If you take that and understand 50 days from Passover, which occurred on Saturday, the Sabbath, you go back to the crucifixion and all of that, and you'll see that that's the case. But then when we come after 40 days, 49 days, 50 days, there's Pentecost. The first day of the week after seven weeks. Pentecost on Sunday. Luke writes in Acts 20, and he talks about that. But I want you to understand something else first. In Leviticus 23, verse 15 and following, there were the qualifications or the restrictions, maybe I should say, of the Sabbath day given to us in the Old Testament according to the Old uh, Covenant. And it was the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day, was, they were very restrictive. Uh, uh, commandments at that point. You could only travel so far. And not very far at that from your home. You ladies couldn't cook anything on that day. You'd have to cook it on Saturday or Friday and have it stored for that day. You couldn't do, you know, some of them got in trouble later on when they were in the wilderness and the manna came early in the morning and on Friday, they were told by God, you go out and gather enough for two days. Well, some of them decided, let's try it on Saturday too. That didn't work too well. That is in violation of God's law. A lot of restriction. And then add to that, that the Pharisees especially have multiplied the restrictions of that Sabbath day. Jesus, as he and the apostles were walking through the grain fields, would pick a head of the grain, rub it in their hands, and eat it, and they got in trouble with the Sadducees, uh, Pharisees, didn't they? You got, why aren't you getting after your, your followers? They're, they're, they're violating the Sabbath. They're, they're har harvesting and eating on the Sabbath day. Can't do that. And on and on we could go with the restrictions they made. But I want you to understand that with Pentecost following on the first day of the week, that meant that all of the events of Acts chapter 2 occurred on the first day of the week. That's the coming of the Holy Spirit, the first gospel sermon, the, the 3,000 conversions, the establishment of the church, all came on the first day of the week. And if we think of that together, that, that, that corporate life, the life of, the, uh, of that New Testament church was so important that it began at that time too. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Now notice those activities all began on the first day of the week. And then notice the New Testament church assembled 
on the first day of the week. Acts 20, verses 6 and 7, that I started a moment ago, when we, we, we came to them in Tro, at Troas where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul spoke to them. I don't know why they stayed seven days. Perhaps in their journey they, they came in on the, the latter part of, the, uh, of the, the, seventh, uh, the eighth, first day of the week. They stayed seven days, and then on the first day of the week they came together with the disciples there to break bread and to worship. It's interesting, there seems to be some reason for it, but we're just not told that. On the first day of the week, uh, Paul told the Corinthians, on the first day of the week, you're to put something aside. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2. This verse says nothing specifically about the assembly. But if you go back to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, you're going to find a discussion of the resurrection which occurred on the first day of the week. And we find now the church, however, is to put, is to put something aside. That is to store it up. Or a, a better literal translation would be put it in the treasury so that when he comes there'd be no gathering. But what occurs here is interesting to me because here is that first day of the week that had some significance to Christian communities. In Galatia, as well as Corinth here, the natural thought is that this was the occasion when Christians were accustomed to being together. Otherwise, the specific day is unintelligible. We, we can't really reason why it's there as a specific day. Fifthly, the Lord's Supper was observed on the first day of the week. The disciples were commanded to partake. We know that from Matthew chapter 26 and Luke chapter 22. The Christians were commanded to assemble. We know that from Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25 that we're to encourage one another. There were assemblies for the purpose of, of eating supper together, and that's not the Lord's Supper. They came to people's houses and ate in the houses and, and had fellowship together as they ate a common meal. And in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 33, when you come together to eat, this is the first day of the week, the only day identified as the time when they were coming together for the purpose of, of eating the supper. Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread. They were coming together on the first day of the week for the Lord's Supper. Now, as, as we've been talking about this, all we're trying to do is show you how important the first day of the week is as far as the church is concerned. On the other hand, I think we must honestly say that, that we have to kind of put these things together in order to make that understanding. The case for weekly communion, the Lord's Supper, on Sunday as presented in our class here, does not solely rest on that Acts chapter two, 20, verse 6 and 7. But that is a key text. It's referring to a, is it referring to a one-time event or is it a casual reference not to be given great importance or does it reflect common or, 
are no normal practice? Uh, we, we have to ask these questions, but the answer is very clear. The New Testament church met on the first day of the week. The New Testament church met there because that was the resurrection day. That was the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2. That was the first gospel sermon. No one knowing where to go. But I want you to know, now look at some church history with me. One way of checking if we've drawn the right conclusion is to look at some history of post-New Testament Christianity. Was the practice of the early church in harmony with the interpretation that we've given? If our conclusions about the New Testament practices are correct, they should receive some confirmation in the testimony of church history. If something's not present in, in the early church Christian literature, then there's some grave doubt about whether it should be or not. This is not to say history becomes our authority. It doesn't. This is to say that it's an important witness that helps us understand that we need to be, we need to look at that and consider the subjects and the necessity of it. You see, we can we can understand the scripture better if we can just picture in our mind the situation, the circumstances, the time element of that day. But as you think about it, several of the important statements of the second century about the assembly of the Lord's people has some references to the Lord's Supper as well. One writer says, Come together each day, Lord's Day of the, uh, uh, of the Lord and break bread and give thanks. Notice three things in this passage. There's a weekly assembly. It's on the day called the Lord's Day. And it's characterized by the breaking of bread. Barnabas, not the Barnabas that we think about earlier, but another Barnabas uh, wrote in the latter part of the first century, early part of the second century. And he says, we Christians keep the eighth day. That's the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. The Sabbath was the seventh. We keep the eighth day for joy on which also Jesus arose from the dead and when he appeared to the, and ascended into heaven. We could quote Justin Martyr. We could quote Acts of John and a different John and, and several other writers. But I want you to note something. The text from the early Christian literature stresses that Christians observed the first day of the week because it was the day of the resurrection. They observed the day with, with an assembly, and in that assembly they take the supper. If the testimony of church history shows that we have not the apostolic practice, then we have a difficult job of explaining how all the churches came to adopt the same custom. Conclusion to be drawn is from historical testimony is that Acts 20 and verse 7 is not an accidental reference, but it reflects a general practice. And I think that's what we need to know. What is, what is, why, why do we gather on the first day of the week? Because the Lord's 
resurrection is on the first day of the week because the church's birthday was on the first day of the week, so to speak. Because we can see so many things that, that point us back to that first day of the week throughout the New Testament and throughout history. But we can't stop here. Something may have a general practice, but yet not have any lasting significance for Christians. We know that this question can be wrapped up with all the uh, scriptures that we've read and, and, and all the passages of historical questions that we've done. And we can understand that. But before drawing out a meeting, let me pose a question. Let me digress just in regard to the significance of the Sabbath. This treatment will allow us to eliminate the principal competitor as to the first day of the week. You remember the old covenant was abolished. We're told very plainly that it was nailed to the cross. It was taken out of the way. It is finished, Jesus said his last words on the cross. It's finished. The work that God gave him to do was done. The Old Testament, old, old covenant that God made with Moses and the children of Israel was finished. It was over. It was done. It had served its purpose. And when the fullness of time had come, Jesus came into existence. We understand that. We understand that uh, many of the passages, Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 7, Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 25, Colossians chapter 2, 16 and following, all talk about something from the Old Testament. And, and Paul uses some of the things that we ought to be doing today because of that. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, talks about marriage and, and how it ought to be the same. And we could talk about other things in the same sense. We're told that in Romans chapter 13 that we're to honor and respect those who are in governmental positions over us. Now, we may not have voted for them, and that not, might, may not be what we would like to see there, but because we're Christians, we're going to respect and honor them. That's simply how it should be, simply how it must be. But notice again that Christians are not to be judged by the old covenant. The Sabbath itself had a significance for the Jews, because God gave it to them specifically. Remember in Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning of verse 12, Moses said, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You shall remember that you were a servant in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now, it, it, it is true that Exodus 20 and verse 11 connects the Sabbath with God's rest at creation. If we were to reconcile the two passages, we'd say God's rest day was a reason for selecting the seventh day rather than some other day. But what reason for having special observance at all was the remembrance of the Exodus. The Sabbath had a doctrinal purpose for Israel. Its significance was remembrance of the day of the deliverance from Egypt. 
As such, remembrance, the Sabbath was given to the Jews only and had significance to the Jews only. God brought you out. Therefore, God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Jews. The Sabbath had no significance to the Gentiles. The Sabbath would have no significance to us. The Sabbath carries no doctrinal significance at all to Gentile Christians today. On the other hand, the first day of the week does have a doctrinal significance for us, for Christians today. It's the day of our deliverance. It's the day of remembrance of the resurrection of Jesus. It's the day of, uh, of the time when that by that great act He delivered us from our sin. We meet on the first day of the, uh, of the week because we're conscious of Christ's presence in our church. We're, it had its beginning as a gathered people, as an assembled group. Not only that, the first day of the week is connected with the reason there is a church. That's the resurrection. And with its actual coming into being as a distinctive community, the events of Acts chapter 2. For these reasons, the church observes Sunday with an assembly. Now, I want you to think about some things. I want to go to the Lord's Supper. It begins with a complex of ideas when we start thinking about it because of its association with our redemption. Redemption that's accomplished by the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. And those things, by their very nature, have the power and influence they ought to have in the church of our Lord. Moreover, it's by its nature that the supper is a corporate act. It's where we all assemble together and participate, have communion, a common union about the Lord's Supper. You see, in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, we see that corporate nature. The supper belongs on its special day when the church shows itself as a church by gathering together as a community activity. The supper must be observed at the time of the assembly. Now, it's perhaps significant, although I wouldn't really press the point very much, but the, the adjective of the Lord's church or of the or, or just the Lord's is only found two times in the New Testament. Found once in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty, and once in Revelation 1 and verse 10 where it was for the Lord's day. And once as we think about it those, those two times, these two things are the Lord's idea of being together, belonging together on His day and His supper. The Lord's day and the Lord's supper. Sounds like they ought to go together, doesn't it? I find this approach much more persuasive than simply quoting Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. This method ties the observance of the Lord's supper more closely with the redemptive elements which is for its commemoration. 
shows that the first day of the week is where it was chosen for not, not for incidental reasons, but it's a day with meaning because of the importance. Now, the Lord's Supper on any other day other than the Lord's Day, first day of the week, Sunday, weakens its, God, its, its scriptural meaning. One writer says, no Lord's Supper without Sunday, and no Sunday without the Lord's Supper. Pretty good way to say it. The methodology illustrates that uh, we'll not provide everyone with a satisfactory solution to the problem. But I want, to, I want you to understand as we look at this, we're not trying to, to interpret the Bible without these contexts. Permit me to look at the Lord's Supper and its observance. I want you to see the, the elements involved. The bread unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine may be purchased or may be made at home. Leaders of the congregation are free to decide that. In either case, the bread should not be, unle not be leavened and the contents of the cup must be the juice of grapes just as Jesus was instituting it at the supper. Before serving the supper, Scripture does not reveal to us what ought to be said before the supper served. Jesus briefly explained to the apostles its meaning by saying that the bread was his body given for them in Luke chapter 22 and verse 19 and 1 Corinthians 11 verse 24. And after the eating of the bread, he said that the cup was his blood in the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 28, Mark 14, 24, Luke 22, verse 20, 1 Corinthians 11, 25. You see, nothing's recorded concerning a song, a song being sung before the supper. Since singing's approved for worship, a well-chosen song or songs can be appropriate to help the participants concentrate on Jesus and what he did. His life, his love, his sacrifice, his resurrection, his return, all of those things should focus our mind on what's going to take place. Any speech that's made should assist the worshipers in concentrating on Jesus and draw them close to him for spiritual strength. The one who speaks to prepare the congregation for the Lord's Supper should first carefully select Scripture or Scriptures. Apply them to Jesus. Discuss the spiritual implications of that. They should realize that the purpose they're there is to help the congregation meditate and focus on Jesus. And be sure, he must be sure, not to draw attention to himself. That isn't the purpose of him being there. He's to glorify Christ. He's to see him crucified. In 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 2, he's central to the supper. He's the one that we're presenting when we're making comments prior to the Lord's Supper and administering the cup and the bread. The early Christian, the second century, the elders were the one who officiated 
at the Lord's table. Ignatius, around A.D. 110, said, Let no man do aught of things pertaining to the church apart from the bishop. Let that be held as a valid Eucharist, which is the Lord's Supper, which is under the bishop, or one to whom he shall have committed it. Around 200 A.D., a Roman Hippolytus, who produced a great volume of writings concerning the early church, wrote a sample prayer, stated that the bishop shall give thanks according to the aforesaid. It is not altogether necessary for him to recite a prayer. According to the brief form, no one shall prevent him. In other words, the bishop, according to that, an elder. That word is used throughout the New Testament as, as an elder, or when it's used in the New Testament. Nothing's wrong with the elders uh, presiding at the Lord's Supper, but the practice is not binding. It's not something that's absolutely uh, commanded. Since the New Testament neither states nor gives an example concerning men in the congregation are to serve the, at the table, any faithful Christian man can serve acceptably. Women, women are excluded because they do not have the right to address the congregation, 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35, or to have a leading role in worship, 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 and 12. Early church history corroborates with the fact that men, not women, serve public meetings. The New Testament does not reveal how the bread and cup are to be served to the people. Congregations do it in different ways, including members may file, single file before the table, pick up the, the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine at the table. Servers may take the emblems back as they do in our service here from the front of the congregation and from the back, or sometimes servers may serve the bread uh, from the uh, uh, front, from the back, from front to back, and then after a prayer, pass the cup to members from the back to the front. Could be done that way. If you have the, the, the grape juice at the back, then break it up this way. Some congregations wait and eat the bread in unison and later drink the cup in unison after it's been served. Now, I don't know whether we'd want to sit there and hold the cup until everybody gets one in their hand. I don't think so. That's the way that some of them do it. I'm just re referring those to you. I think, I think the method that's used here is perfectly adequate. And then I want you to notice the order of service. Jesus broke the bread, gave it to the apostles, and then they drank of the cup. Jesus' example included a specific order which should be observed today. He did the following with the bread. He took it. He took it and spoke concerning it. He blessed it or gave thanks for it. He broke it. And then we're thinking about a big piece of bread and he broke off the pieces for them. And you've, you've probably been to churches today that use the, the, the cracker type unleavened bread that you break a piece off when it passes by you. Certainly acceptable. And then he passed it to his apostles and told them to eat it in remembrance of him. He broke it and then told them after he did that. And then he did the following with the cup. He gave thanks for it. 
having taken and given it to the apostles earlier. Did you notice that he blessed the bread and gave thanks for the cup? Therefore, we have the supper referred to as the breaking of bread in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. Or they came together to break bread, Acts 20 and verse 7. More likely it was used because this was a common expression applied to the eating of a meal. In this case, the Lord's meal. And then he, there were prayers for the supper. Two, two Greek words are, are used here in reference to Jesus' prayers during the Lord's Supper. Eulogy, which trans, is translated bless, from which we get the word eulogy that we use often at a, at a funeral. We read a eulogy, blessing that individual, talking about their past. And Eucharisto is translated with the word thanks, from which the word Eucharist has come. Eucharist is a, is a word used by some religious groups referring to the Lord's Supper. According to Matthew and Mark, Jesus blessed the bread. Jesus took the bread, and after blessing, he broke it. Later, Paul wrote that Jesus gave thanks for the bread with that Eucharisto. And when he had taken some of the bread and given thanks, he broke it. The Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 23 and 24, when praying for the cup, Jesus gave thanks. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 27, Mark 14, 23. Paul did not mention what was done when Jesus blessed the cup or giving thanks before he passed it. Bless and thanks are sometimes used interchangeably. The reason is that bless means to thank or to express appreciation for, for the bestowal of a special favor. Matthew used giving thanks concerning Jesus' prayer before breaking the loaves and feeding the 5,000 and feeding the 4,000. What a, what a message that was for us. And prayers that are to be said for partaking the bread and the cup should express gratitude to God for bless, the blessing of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. They should not be personal prayers, but ones that can be silently and meaningly prayed with the rest of the congregation. The goal in leading such a prayer should not be length, but meaning. Simplicity and sincerity should characterize all public prayer. Some offer a prayer of thanksgiving for both the bread and the cup at the same time, before they're given to the congregation, Jesus must have had a good reason for leading a prayer before the bread and another before the cup. The most appropriate thing to do is to follow his example and have a prayer before each of them occurs. And I want to notice for whom. Should the bread and the cup be offered to children? No. Non-Christians? No. Visitors? only if they are Christian. Some denominations require a letter of recommendation before they would allow a visitor to receive the Lord's Supper. That's not necessary. Others offer communion only to those listed as members of that particular church. Again, that's not a practice seen in the New Testament. Some un uninformed visitors may be present, and some should explain the purpose of the Lord's Supper and who should partake it. 
those who have the right to eat the Lord's Supper are those who are in one body, the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, 17, 12, chapter 12, verse 13. The church in, 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 first, in uh, Colossians 1 and verse 18. Christians may make up this body, Romans 12 and verse 5, having been baptized into Christ. Romans 6, 3, Colossians, uh, Galatians 3, 27. Children who have not been baptized should be bypassed. Christians who are present to examine themselves and partake in a worthy manner. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 and 28. The emblem should be offered to every Christian with the exception of an individual from whom the congregation has had to withdraw fellowship. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 1. And again, the time of the supper. Scripture's been very clear first day of the week. The communion can, uh, can be observed at any time during the assembly. At the beginning, at the middle, or near the end of service. When I, when I, where I preached for 31 years in Prescott, we, had, we broadcasted our Sunday morning sermon live on the local radio. We had to be on the air at 11 o'clock. At, at 11 o'clock. We had to be off the air at 11.30. So we had the Lord's Supper after the sermon. Because we couldn't, you couldn't get the song leaders all can, time scheduled in there just right. Um, but they, they wanted that to be done. And I've known, known other times, but now we need to recognize that we, we have an extra uh, Lord's Supper on Sunday night for those who were unable to be here on Sunday morning. Members who do not decide to come uh, just to partake the Lord's Supper and then leave, who, who decide to come then take, to take the Lord's Supper and then leave as are overlooking the importance of the other aspects of worship. Emergencies may make this excusable, I understand that. But I want you to know that the Lord's Supper is an integral part of the Christian assembly on the Lord's Day. And those who partake and those who serve should realize the gravity of eating and drinking of that cup that represents the body and the blood of Jesus. All who observe the Lord's Supper, I think, would do well to realize that Jesus is watching and considering the manner in which he's being remembered in the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to be talking about leadership. Bow with me for a moment and pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to you. We're so thankful Jesus came and offered himself as the sacrifice for our sins. And we're so thankful, Father, that we can remember that and dwell upon that every Lord's day. Be with us, Father. Guide us. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name.